This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week we bring you a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest. I am your host, Margot, and I'm here with my sister and co-host, Jenna. And today we have a story for you about the murder of Sherry Black, a 64-year-old mother, grandmother, and beloved small business owner in Salt Lake City, Utah, who was bludgeoned and stabbed to death on November 30th, 2010. It was a crime that shocked the small South Salt Lake City town and left everyone wondering, was this horrific crime a crime of passion? Was it revenge? Or was it just a horrendous, random act of violence? I already have a lot of questions, but I'll let you move on. (laughs) Okay. Good. Yes. Save your questions. Let some, somebody left us a comment and called the beginning parts of these episodes like um something about geographical, like. Yeah. Yeah. They said they love the geography sense of place that we established before getting into it, yeah. which I think is a nice way to, to say that. And I also want to, I'm going to put this in the show notes, but I know that the beginning parts, like this geography sense of place that we established isn't necessarily for everyone. And we've also had some comments of people not necessarily loving this part. So if you're just here for the story, that's what you want. You don't want to hear any of this like kind of intro banter trivia stuff. The goal for every episode is to always start the story between 12 and 15 minutes. If you're like, I don't want to hear this. I just want to get to the story. You just skip ahead. I like to skip ahead sometimes in different podcasts. Yeah, totally. And if this bores people, which is completely acceptable, please skip ahead and don't miss the story because the stories are pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me into, I just wanted to, to say at the top of the episode, thank you to everyone for the reviews that you've been leaving. Good and medium. Right. Medium reviews. We we're we're open to all of it. We want to hear all the feedback. I think that it's helpful. The good feedback obviously is wonderful and easy to digest. The medium or less than medium feedback is harder to hear, but good to hear too. I think it's a, it's a good kind of keeps you in check. Well, I guess they call it constructive criticism. Right. Which we can if we think it's valid, which mm-hmm. everyone's opinion's valid, but if we think it could help us create a better podcast, yeah, then we'll shift in that direction. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So yes, thank you to everyone and happy new year. And let's jump into a little geography sense of place. I'm going to start saying that thanks to, it was the person who left the comment was Bex N. Hen. That was their username on Apple. Huh. So thank you. So before we get into 20 things that you might not know about Salt Lake City, I'm just going to give you kind of an overview because I didn't really know anything about Salt Lake City before before this episode. Do you? I don't know anything except for, well, no, I was going to say something about Utah, but not Salt Lake City specific. Yeah, me either. So Salt Lake City is the headquarters of the Mormon religion. It's also the capital and the most populous city of Utah. It's in the northeast corner of the Salt Lake Valley, surrounded by the Great Salt Lake to the northwest, the steep Wasatch Range to the east, and the Ocur Mountains to the west. It's to the very north part of Utah, but kind of right in the middle of Utah, but up at the top. 
North Central. North Central, there you go. Salt Lake City had a population of about 200,000 in 2020. Um, It has a cold, semi-arid climate, though it borders on a Mediterranean climate and a humid continental climate, as summers are dry and hot and winters are cold and wet, but rarely frigid. Salt Lake City has an area of 110 square miles. The average elevation is 4,300 feet. How? What's our elevation here in Tucson? Like 1,500, I believe. Oh, okay. 1,200. Got it. So Salt Lake City was founded July 24th, 1847 by early pioneer settlers led by Brigham Young, who was seeking to escape persecution that they had experienced while living further east. The Mormon pioneers, as they would come to be known, entered the valley and immediately began planning and building an extensive irrigation network, which could feed the population and foster future growth. That is taken directly from Wikipedia, by the way. This was interesting because Tucson is on a grid system and so is Salt Lake City. Meaning Uh, the the roads. Yeah, the roads. And I'm the worst with directions. Like I'm absolutely terrible. Tucson to me is very manageable to get around because of the grid system. It's like all the roads you know, either go north and south or east and west. Mm -hmm. Super simple. So apparently Salt Lake City is too. Does that have something to do with like how we were raised? Like did mom and dad not teach us directionals? Because we're both pretty bad with directions. Like I I rely heavily on Google Maps. I think these days most people do. That's true. It's like people used to know each other's phone numbers. I don't know your, I know it's five. Oh, Not going to say that on the air. <laughs> and then the the last thing about Salt Lake City is that it has a very strong tourist industry based primarily on skiing, outdoor recreation, and religious tourism. It hosted the 2002 Winter Olympics and is a candidate city for the 2030 Winter Olympics. It's also known for its politically liberal culture, which is a pretty s- stark contrast to the rest of the state's highly conservative leanings, apparently. Mm. All right. Well, that is just kind of a Wikipedia style overview of Salt Lake City. And now we're going to get into 20 things that you didn't know about Salt Lake City, which is from a website called the Matador Network. As our Apple review friend said, it gives a good sense of the place. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit interesting. And I also uh, narrowed it down to 10 because I felt like 20 was a lot. I'm going to turn them into questions. Uh See, See what you think. Do you think that there are more Mormons or non-Mormons in Salt Lake City? Non-Mormons? Yes. So on this website, it says, sorry to crush your vision of what Salt Lake City is supposed to be like, but the Mormon majority is a thing of the past. The non-Mormon population has been on a steady rise for the last decade. And despite the fact that it is the headquarters of the religion, obviously not everyone you'll meet there is going to be Mormon. I imagine a lot of people that live there enjoy the outdoors, the yes, mountains. Utah's the, beautiful. You've yeah. been to Utah, just not Salt Lake City? I haven't. Okay. Or maybe I've been yeah, I've been to the Four Corners. I haven't really been you Throughout know, explored, Utah. Yeah. Right. And so I guess drinking in Utah was kind of not a thing for a while. What there do you mean? a lot of dry counties um, for a while. I had to look this up. So it says... One of these facts says there are more bars than you think. There's 118 or more bars, which in Salt Lake City, which is kind of a lot. I, I don't know how, how many bars are in Tucson. It says, uh, contrary to popular belief, you can you can buy a drink in Utah. Walk into any of Salt Lake City's 118 bars and you'll see that it's fully equipped to serve you a drink. The good stuff too, not just the 3.2 beer you've heard horror stories about. So I read that and I was like, I've never heard 3.2 beer 
So I looked it up and it said the 3.2 beer legacy came to an end in Utah uh, recently where breweries were allowed to produce regular beers, not lower alcohol beers. It ended a an 86-year run. An 86-year run? Doesn't that mean it just ended? Yeah. Utah restaurants that sold liquor were once required to have a seven-foot barrier around the bar to prevent children from seeing the mixing and pouring of drinks. Most of those so-called Zion curtains were torn down in 2017. And after 86 years, Utah's 3.2 beer law finally met its demise in 2019. All beer up to 5% alcohol by volume is now sold in grocery and convenience stores. But I bet liquor isn't. I bet it isn't either. And also Utah in 2018 lowered the state's blood alcohol content level to 0.05, making it the lowest drunken driving limit in the nation. I think the bottom line is that that, that Utah and Salt Lake City have some, have had some pretty strict liquor laws. And they're slowly easing up. And they're slowly easing up, yes. It is one of the most accessible blank destinations in the world. I'm supposed to fill in the blank? Sure. It's the most accessible cycling destination. Oh, it's actually ski. Oh. It's one of the most accessible ski destinations oh, in the, the world. Oh, the Okura Mountains? Yeah, there's a lot of mountains, uh. a lot of mountains and 14 ski resorts there. Hmm. Yeah. It has one of the largest blank communities in the U.S. And I'm guessing it's not Mormon. Correct. The largest elderly. Ooh, LGBTQIA. Oh. Uh. Salt Lake City was Advocate's number one gayest city in the USA in 2012. It dropped to number six in 2013, but that's still a lot higher than like I would have guessed or imagined. Um, It was the first in the state, Salt Lake City was the first place in the state to pass anti-discrimination ordinances based on sexual orientation and uh, therefore has a huge LGBTQIA community. How do they determine which is the biggest? Like, do they mean by population or most supportive? Maybe. It's on the lookup list. This surprised me. This is a food that is flown in fresh daily. Tamale. Sushi. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it would have to be flown in. <laughs> I mean, I guess all or not all. But yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Not not exactly where you'd expect to get like super fresh sushi. It doesn't say super fresh, though, does it? It just says it's flown in. It does. It says if you uh, think sushi in landlocked Utah sounds more like a death wish than a nice way to spend a night out, you'd be missing out on over a dozen of Salt Lake City's best restaurants. Flown in fresh daily. The fish at Takashi is the best that you'll ever have. There's a bunch of other apparently very highly rated sushi places. So that makes me not so much question the sushi in Utah, but the sushi in other middle America where <laughs> does that mean it's not flown in fresh daily? Who knows? That's I have true. no idea. Kind of a weird one. I guess that's an abstract one. So I guess there's a saying that people say that the powder here is different for like skiing and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that means. I'm not a skier. And I don't know how they mean different. It's right. better. It's fluffier. It's more high quality. It's fresher. It's cleaner air. I don't know. <laughs> Those are all the thoughts that came to mind. A lot of potential ideas. Uh Well, this article says it's more than just marketing hype. Most storms that hit Utah develop over the Pacific, then travel inland, losing moisture density as they go. After passing over the Great Salt Lake, they pick up speed and get colder and drier before spewing down all over the Wasatch. The effect is perfect for skiing, a nice dense base topped with fluffy low-density powder. You know what I just thought of? I wonder if Salt Lake 
has a high, I believe, a high density quantity of uh, salt. That's not how they refer to it in a body of water, but kind of like the Dead Sea. Uh-huh. And what happens when you put salt on something that has moisture? out. Right? So I wonder out. if that happens because I oh. imagine dry snow keeps it fluffier. It doesn't bog down with the water. Oh, I see what you're saying. Is it because yeah. there's more higher salt content? Yeah, there? yeah. It's on the lookup list. The first and only ski-in, ski-out distillery in the world is in Salt Lake City. So like once you're done skiing, you can just slide down the slopes to Park City's High West Distillery and Saloon for a tasting session of their local small batch whiskey and other spirits. Slide down the slope and into the bar. Like a swim up bar at the pool, but Mm -hmm. with skis. Yeah. And it is home to the very first fast food restaurant of what? Like what chain fast food restaurant was first? The first one ever was here in Salt Lake City. What a burger. KFC. Oh, well, I don't know. You said of what? So. <laughs> that would have been really good if it was Whataburger. Mm. Oh, KFC. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's the only place that you can chow down on KFC chicken buffet while sitting next to one of the Colonel's original white suits. Huh. Yeah. First one. So that's it. Those were the coolest facts I found about Salt Lake. I like them. Yeah. Not as, I guess, less depressing than, um, remember the last ones we did for Reno? And it was like, so the drunkenness, oh, like liver, liver disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these were nice. They yeah. were just Simple, interesting. Interesting. And now if somebody says, like, do you know anything about Salt Lake City? You'll be able to like name at least one fact. The first KFC ever. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's uh let's jump into this story about the murder of Sherry Black. And like I said earlier, she was a 64-year-old grandmother, mother, and beloved small business owner in Salt Lake City, Utah. And she was killed on November 30th, 2010 in a, a very violent and horrific crime that shocked this South Salt Lake City community. So Sherry was born on October 14th, 1946 in Provo, Utah. And she grew up in a place called Orem and attended Orem High School, which is where she first developed a real love of books and reading. She loved books and loved to read. She also developed a love of bowling because her parents owned a bowling alley while she was growing up. So she joined a bunch of different competitive bowling leagues throughout her childhood and her teens. And she was quite good, apparently, and that took her family. They traveled all across the United States for these competitive bowling leagues. Where she was competing. Competing. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And it was also in these competitive bowling leagues in high school that Sherry ended up meeting the love of her life, Earl B. Black. He was also a bowler. So they met in high school and were married in uh, 1965. So she was, what, 19 or something? Yeah, pretty much uh, right out of high school, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And they began what anyone who knew them has kind of always referred to as a, a wonderful life together. They were very much happy and in love. They had many, many hobbies in common. They both had a, a serious love for the outdoors, for animals. They valued hard work. They liked adventure. And most importantly, they both really, really valued family. And they started a family not long after they were married. They had two children. Also, not long after they were married, Sherry's love for animals and the outdoors helped her land a career as a docent at the Hogel Zoo. She was also elected as one of the presidents of the Utah Docent Society. According to this website that was dedicated to Sherry called SherryBlackInfo.com, Sherry's most important role was that of wife, mother, and grandmother. She loved her family dearly and could always be found doing the little things that made their lives easier. 
She was especially excited about the new adventure of becoming a great-grandmother. At the time of her death, Sherry had a daughter, Heidi, six grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and another on the way. And her first grandson had just arrived in Chile to begin his mission for the Church of Latter-day Saints. For much of her life, she was a stay-at-home mom once she started having kids. She raised two kids in this house that she lived in with Earl along Highway 700. And she helped her husband Earl with his pool table business, which she ran out of the store that was attached to their home. So they had a home kind of off of the highway, a little pushed back, and then they had a business attached to it. And they lived there for 37 years. Sherry's sister, Debbie Way Casey, said Sherry and her brother-in-law Earl had been married since high school and always had had a very, very loving relationship. Just everybody always said they were very happy. They seemed very happy together. Sherry loved her life. She loved being a mom. But in 1989, Sherry and Earl suffered a great loss that kind of stopped her dead in her tracks. When their youngest child, Jason, who was only 18 at the time, tragically died after accidentally shooting himself. Apparently, he was helping a few friends move when he picked up a 22 caliber revolver. He loaded the gun with six rounds and then shook five rounds and the gun's extractor out onto the floor. His friend said that he was just messing around with it and that Jason put the revolver up to his head and pulled the trigger twice. Both times the gun clicked, but nothing came out. Jason likely thought that the gun was totally empty or that it would not fire with the extractor missing. But unfortunately, the third time that Jason pulled the trigger, the gun did go off. And four hours later, Jason passed away at the University of Utah Medical Center from an accidental self-inflicted gunshot wound. Following this tragic, untimely death of her son, Sherry was grieving and looking for something to help her kind of feel alive again, feel happy again, move forward with her life. And where she ended up was pouring through bookstores and estate sales and collecting Mormon texts and religious texts. Her daughter Heidi said it came so naturally to her. She learned to spot valuable texts and slowly got really, really good at collecting kind of these one-of-a-kind books. Sherry had always been a voracious reader, as I said earlier. She, from a very early age in high school, she loved reading. Her daughter Heidi Miller said that Sherry never read a book that she didn't love. And eventually, Sherry decided to turn her love of books and reading into more than just a hobby. With Earl's blessing, she transformed a portion of the shop that was attached to their home where Earl restored pool tables into a bookstore specializing in rare religious texts. Sherry and Earl called the new shop B&W Supply Billiards and Books. And although Earl did continue restoring old pool tables, and he also made and sold custom knives, Sherry's rare book collection continued to grow to the point that it took over much of the small shop. Heidi praised her mother's passion for books and book selling, saying she knew what she was doing. She knew where everything was, and she had a real knack for it. She was amazing. And it sounds like that's absolutely true, that over the years, Sherry really developed an outstanding reputation as a book dealer and was renowned for her never-faltering honesty and integrity, creating quite a name for herself within the niche rare books community. A fellow bookseller, Kurt Bench from Benchmark Books said, Sherry is quiet. She's very unassuming, kind, and friendly, and she really knew her stuff. She knew books, and she was very successful at what she did. She had a good reputation in the trade for being honest and having tons of integrity. 
So Sherry sold these books online and she generally didn't take walk-ins. She would mostly do appointments for customers to come by the store because a lot of these books apparently were were worth quite a bit of money. Wow. She really made like a new avenue of life for herself. She did. That's awesome. Yeah, she did. Hmm. And this was in the early 90s, I think, right? Her son died in 89. So around... 90, 91, 95, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think she started collecting them and kind of spent several years learning about rare books and collect and started collecting them before she actually, you know, transformed part of that attached store into a bookstore. And and I actually read that she had managed to collect so many books and had such a huge backstock of books that they had to kind of add on to the shop a little bit. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, very cool. Ooh, question. Mm-hmm. Religious texts. Religious just as they relate to LDS or maybe any religion? Mostly as they relate to LDS, okay. yeah. It wasn't only religious texts. It was the majority religious texts from what I understand. So Sherry did this for you. I mean, she did this, like I said, started it after her son died and continued to do it up until she died for many, many years. So flash forward to 2010, the morning of November 30th, 2010, started off like any other morning for Sherry and her family. She helped take some of her grandkids to school. She came home and took care of some laundry. And then she headed next door to the attached B&W Billiards and Books, which had now been in business for over 10 years. Hmm. She was tending to post-Thanksgiving shoppers and enjoying what seemed like a very normal day. Unfortunately, this day would take a devastating turn for Sherry and her family. The unease began when Sherry's daughter, Heidi, was calling her mom later that morning. Heidi said, I've been calling her all morning and she didn't pick up, which was really strange. So Heidi began to worry. Around 1.30 p.m. that day, Earl returned to the shop and, as usual, began winding his way through the stacks and shelves of books, calling out for Sherry, but got no response. He called out for Sherry again and figured that she was in the back stock room where she often spent hours pouring through her beloved books. So he headed back there. But what Earl found when he strolled into the back room stopped him dead in his tracks. He was not greeted with a smile from his beloved wife of over 40 years, but instead had walked into what felt like a living nightmare. Sherry was laying on the floor in a pool of blood, very clearly dead. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Nine one one. What is the address of the Emerald? My wife's been murdered. Is she awake? No, she's dead. Okay, is she breathing at all? No, she's dead. Uh, I can't. I can't handle this. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so awful. Yeah. He knew then. Like he probably walked in, saw whatever the awful scene that you just described, and then sounds. I have no idea the timeline, but if he just called nine one one, yeah, he knew based on the way her body looked or I would imagine how yeah. much blood there was. Aww. It was, it was a really brutal scene. Um, <sighs> and, and one of the detectives that was first on this case, um, actually spoke about, about it. I mean, I've been doing this for quite a while and, and this was probably one of the most brutal, um, scenes I've seen. She was beaten and stabbed and it was, a, a violent, brutal scene based on the autopsy that was later performed, it it appeared that Sherry had put up quite a fight. She had defensive wounds on her body, but sadly, you know, she was no match for her attacker. She had been stabbed at least 20 times, beaten, and her body had been sexually assaulted after she died. Oh, God. Obviously, Sherry's family was devastated by the news of her brutal murder and mourned this loss of their mother, grandmother, wife. To put it lightly. Yeah. And, oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. And really the biggest question was who would do such a thing? Because everyone, you know, Sherry had lived there for for a very long time. They had a little small business. They were well-liked. They were loved by the community. Many people talked about her and remembered her as, as greeting every person with a smile. She was like very motherly and warm and loving to everyone. So it was just completely completely shocking. And the question on everyone's mind was who could have done this? Who would want to hurt this woman who was adored by just about everyone she came in contact with? So there was a couple initial theories. The first was, was this a crime of passion committed by someone close to her? You know, the first place that most people look is the husband. The level of violence of this crime certainly suggests that it could be a crime of of passion. Statistically, Stabbing is a pretty intimate way to murder somebody, which sounds like a weird word to use, but it generally points to a crime of passion. So it it wasn't Earl. They ruled him out very, very quickly. And Because what? Someone accounted for wherever he was at the time of death or something? I believe so, yeah. And uh, she, you know, she had a close relationship with her kids, grandkids. She didn't have, from what anybody could tell, there was no extramarital affairs, no lovers, nothing like that. So this theory of a crime of passion, it was quickly kind of 
let go. So then the next theory was, well, a robbery, because there's a lot of high value books here. Was anything stolen? Before I answer that, I'm going to say that another bookseller, Ken Sanders, owns a store similar to Sherry's. He said that rare Mormon books can be worth an extraordinary amount of money. A nice book of Mormon is often worth a hundred grand. Holy um, moly. A rare book of commandments is worth a million dollars plus and people will kill for a heck of a lot less than that, which no kidding. But unfortunately, this theory also quickly fell apart because nothing was taken. Nothing was stolen. Not the jewelry that she was wearing, not the cash from the cash register, no books, nothing. As far as anyone could tell, everything was accounted for. Wow. And then there was one more theory that existed. Revenge. Several years before Sherry's murder, she had unknowingly purchased some rare stolen books from a local gang member named Lauren Nielsen, who was allegedly affiliated with the Insane Clown Posse or the Juggalos gang. Which I'm guessing is has nothing to do with the musical group. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Decent question. Decent question, yes. So according to police reports, unbeknownst to Sherry, she purchased 14 rare stolen LDS books from a gang member, Lauren, who had a history of making violent threats. He sold these books that included a first edition French Book of Mormon, signed by John Taylor with a message to Parley P. Pratt and 13 others to Sherry for $20,000. In reality, they were actually worth around $45,000. So this gang participant member mm -hmm. or whatever knowingly sold them, but it sounds like at the time didn't know how authentic, real, were worth a oh, lot no. of money. He knew they were, but he stole them and he was just trying to sell them. He was okay. trying to get rid of them, okay. so he's selling them for a discount. Sherry did not know that they were stolen. Ah. She thought that she was buying, you know, legitimate books from... She didn't know he was a gang member. Sherry's friend, a fellow book dealer, Scott Young, says that Sherry told him about the incident and that she did everything she could to make it right once she learned that the books were stolen. He said, quote, she was mortified that something like this would happen to her. None of us ever want to be in a situation like that. How did she, I wonder how she learned or when she learned. I don't know how she learned, but um, the police report states that she had already sold the French Book of Mormon to another dealer, but she returned the rest of the books to police. She also apparently helped police prosecute Lauren Nielsen, who was arrested and charged with stealing books from his father, a polygamous church president, in February of 2009. Um, Detective Sutera said she was cooperative with Lauren, law enforcement in prosecuting this individual. So it wasn't, you don't have to answer this, obviously, it wasn't the guy that sold, like the the middleman, essentially, that sold her the book, I don't think, because it sounds like he got arrested. He got arrested. I don't know how long he was in jail for, um, but, okay. you know, she was murdered in 2010. Right. He was arrested in uh, 2009. 2009. But revenge seemed like a, you know, if he's in a gang, his fellow gang members or other people that he's associated with could potentially want revenge for her helping to get him prosecuted. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Now, thank you for saying that. But I also was thinking whoever he initially got stole whatever the books from. His father. His daddy. His dad. Totally. Yeah. Any of those. So these were all possible leads and seemed very promising. But according to Detective Sutera, Nielsen was thoroughly investigated and it was determined that him or any of his associates were not suspects in this. Okay, so that's all for not. That's nothing. All for not. Oh. 
So all of these theories, the crime of passion, robbery, revenge, these were all things that the police were kind of like pulling at at first. But they, as I said, they all quickly fell apart upon further investigation, which left the police and Jerry's family and friends with far more questions than answers. They were all just at a loss. Sherry's brother, Jim Y. Casey, said he was unaware of anyone who would want to kill his sister. He described her as likable, a grandmother who was very involved with her family. He said her business was mostly selling books online, and he never heard her talk about troublesome business or personal relationships outside of this, you know, um, stolen books incident, obviously. Uh, so she she did share with her loved ones or close yeah. confidants yes. about this challenging buy-sell situation. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it was someone who not involved with the middleman insane clown posse gang member or his dad but maybe someone who knew that she still had in her possession one of these books perhaps but she didn't she handed them all over all over okay yeah go on the entire neighborhood basically was just couldn't understand like why who how nobody had any (laughs) 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 we're not laughing at that but that why who how yeah But those, you know, those were all the questions. So following her murder, police launched, obviously, a a serious homicide investigation and canvassed the neighborhood near the business, asking residents if they saw or heard anything. No one had. But fortunately for police, the murder had left behind a good amount of evidence. Police found a man's Armani exchange belt at the scene that they quickly determined wasn't anyone in Cherry's family's. It had a waist measurement of approximately 36 to 38 inches and had a sticker on the backside of the belt buckle with the number 323 on it. The killer also left blood, a partial fingerprint, and a palm print at the scene. The killer left their blood. Yes. And a partial fingerprint. And a palm print. Which is only, quote unquote, helpful if you've been an individual who's already been booked in the system with some sort of prints. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So several days after Sherry's murder, detective, another detective, Detective Ruth said, we know someone knows who this suspect is. He probably sustained injuries to his hands and may have gone to the hospital or called in sick to work in the days following Sherry's death. And while they were waiting for the DNA results to come back in, because they obviously ran these fingerprints and DNA through... CODIS. Uh, They implored the help of the public saying, we actually need help from viewers to help us with this case. What we're asking for is if anyone was traveling on 700 East on November 30th in the area of the crime scene between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m., if anyone saw anything suspicious, a car speeding away, someone running down the sidewalk, anything, no matter how minute, we really need you to call and tell us about it. So unfortunately, when they ran the DNA through CODIS, which is the national database that holds DNA from offenders and unidentified evidence from crime scenes, there were no hits and there were also no hits or matches for the finger for the partial fingerprint. Or the palm print? Apparently not. Hmm. So with no leads from the DNA or the fingerprints, the investigation quickly began to stagnate. You know, remember there had been no forced entry Nothing from the store or from Sherry's body had been stolen. And as far as anyone knew, Sherry seemingly had no enemies. And the devastation that Sherry's family was experiencing quickly became desperation as they hit dead end after dead end. At the time of Sherry's death, Heidi, her daughter, had said, I immediately thought we'll catch this guy. Which, of course, if somebody left their belt, their blood, their fingerprints, I would assume the same thing. I would be like, oh, we got him. We're going to catch him. 
Well, yeah. And if your loved one who was recently murdered didn't outwardly, at least to your knowledge, have a ton of enemies or people that were after her or didn't have a ton of money or, yeah, Mm -hmm. like this is seems to me, at least right now, like quite a specific situation. Mm -hmm. Huh? Yeah. Oh, no. I had a thought, but I won't say it. Say it. Well, no, my thought just went back to the husband. Oh, well, let's see where this story goes. So 18 months after her mom had been murdered, Heidi made a statement saying that the lack of progress was incredibly frustrating. She said, I used to call Lieutenant Ruth at least once a week. But at this point, it's just too draining to call him all the time and hear the same thing. I'll ask him, is there any news? And he says, no. I imagine it was draining for Lieutenant Ruth as well because he wants to help. He wants to find. He wants to identify the person. I imagine I can't speak for you, Lieutenant Ruth. Right. But Um, if you're listening, let us know how you were feeling during that time. I'm sure he was very frustrated. Um, Heidi also worried for the safety of others, saying at the time, it was a brutal, vicious, horrible crime, and I'm scared to death that another family will have to go through what we've gone through. Someone who could do this in the first place could definitely do it again. Well, and also, I just imagine, and I could never, because I've never had a loved one uh, murdered, Mm -hmm. but I'd also kind of maybe, if I got in my head over the past 18 months, mm-hmm. be a bit worried about, was this a specific crime? And is this person maybe after something about our family or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, like worried about myself, safety. my children, if I had them. Yeah. Absolutely. Because this person is still out there. They have no idea who it is. And, you know, just to add insult to injury, Earl, Sherry's husband, not only had to bury his wife, but he had to Um, kind of break down the quirky little store that she had loved so much. Oh, the B&W supply billiards Mm -hmm. and books. Oh, no. No, we're not going to leave the store open. We do plan on selling the books, but... uh, We're going to make her proud. We're not just going to... We're not just going to get rid of her. We'll never know what she knew, but we can try. Aw. Yeah, it's, it's really... Sad. I'll have to post that clip of him because he's. You can just see the heartbreak in his eyes at that. Not only has he lost his wife of his whole life since high school, and then you know he supported and and loved the fact that she loved books and had this bookstore and found this new passion, this kind of new career later in life. And he couldn't keep doing it because he didn't know about the books. It wasn't his passion. So now he has to also kind of like dismantle this thing that was so important to her, which is just incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking. I, I mean, I know he didn't have as uh, depth of knowledge as she did about these books and all of it. And even if he had, I imagine he may still, yeah. How like, painful. Oh, yeah. He said around that time, uh, he said, I've been told what a wonderful woman she was, but I don't have her anymore. I have the memory of coming home and finding her in a provocative position with a pair of shears sticking out of her heart. Whoa, mm-hmm. that's like a whole extra piece of information. Yeah. Shears, like scissors. Yeah. Okay. But in the provocative position, I know she was sexually assaulted once she had passed on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, she was like apparently partially clothed, like uh, some of her clothes had been removed. Yeah, I mean, just unimaginable how terrible that would be. 
in April of 2012, so two years about after her, her murder, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit consulted on the case. And in March, members of something called the Prestigious Vidoak Society, it's a society that specializes in assisting law enforcement with unsolved cases. Say it again, prestigious. It's V-I-D-O-C-Q. Vidoak, I'm not sure how to say it. Um, They came to Salt Lake City to look over the evidence and agreed with the police who felt that they were looking for someone who likely lived in the area or knew the area where Sherry was killed. And this is because the bookstore, though it was off of this um, seven or eight lane highway, Highway 700, it was kind of back off the road, tucked away, partially hidden behind trees. There wasn't a lot of signs. There wasn't a ton of, there wasn't like a a sign on the highway that said, turn here for B&W. You know, it was kind of hidden. Mm. You had to know that it was there. Um, Detective Ruth said, you wouldn't know it was there unless you knew it was there. Also in 2012, Detective Ruth told People Magazine, this is not a cold case. We're working tips daily and anything and everything, even the small things could potentially turn into something big. Sherry's family, however, while they were grateful for the help that the authorities and the dedication that the authorities were giving to this, they were not impressed with the progress that was being made. So they sought help from a group called the Larry H. Miller Group, a group that owns the Utah Jazz pro basketball team and was named after Heidi's husband's late father. Yeah, because she was married to Greg Miller. Yeah, who was the CEO. Of the Utah yeah, Jazz, yeah. yeah. Okay. So this group launched a website, SherryBlackInfo.com, where, where I actually got a lot of information from it. And it offered, and still does to this day, details of the crime and promised a $50,000 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of Sherry's killer. But as month after month went by with no useful information coming in, Sherry's family's hopes were growing wary. Yeah. Well, and I'm at, and I have no, again, I have no idea because I've never had a, a loved one, a close individual to me be murdered. But I imagine after what, this is 18 months in, two years, 24, yeah. 30 months in. Yep. At some point, you, I imagine people want to move on, not move on, but you Close. can't keep yeah. folk, even if there is no closure, like, are you going to stop living? No. I get, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't I, know either. To get a little personal, and this is completely different. This is a horrific crime, an untimely death. There was no preparation for it. And no closure. I know what you're going to say. No closure. But yes, I was going to say we lost our mom years ago and she was sick. She died of cancer. She, She was sick for months. And so there was some preparation and then there was closure. Completely different. But even something completely different, it was hard. It is hard to move on for a while. And we had closure. This, I can't, I would imagine it would be almost impossible to move on. It would be all consuming, I'd imagine. And, and it would be That's difficult what to, I'm trying to, say. to yeah, find like, a way to have it not be all consuming. Right. Yeah. So that was 2012 where they were still, you know, having hope. They had this Larry Miller group come in. Years pass. So now we're in 2017 and nothing. Oh my gosh. Is it, I know you're not going to answer this or you shouldn't. Is this going to come up with, we still don't know because now I'd like to know. And <laughs> I'm not going to answer Screw me. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what I want. So in 2017, seven years after Sherry's murder, there was potentially a small glimmer of hope. South Salt Lake City Police Chief Jack Carruth explained that advanced DNA information had helped authorities determine what Sherry's murder may have looked like. 
So in 2017, 2018, around that time, a new DNA technology came out called phenotyping. And phenotyping is a process used to predict, quote, an organism's phenotype using only genetic information collected from genotyping or DNA sequencing. Yes, I know that is a wordy sentence that made very little sense to me. So kind of in layman's terms, phenotyping is used to predict a person's physical appearance and ancestry using genetic codes from their DNA. Based on that information, researchers can predict skin color, hair color, eye color, and a basic facial structure using percentages. So Sherry's case was the first time that phenotyping had ever been used in Utah. And South Salt Lake City Police spokesman at the time, Gary Kelly, he said, it's becoming the industry standard. They use it a lot for for found human remains. So a place called Parabon Nanolabs took the DNA found at the scene of Sherry's murder and created images of what the man may have looked like based on genetic code that di- dictates physical traits such as face shape, eye, skin, and hair color. Does this have anything to do, and I know you probably in what you just said, which I was listening, but I also was thinking, gosh, is this some of that 23andMe stuff? Oh, yes, it is. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm going to get there. And I, you mentioned this in the last episode. And I so, did? Yeah. 23andMe? Mm-hmm. Because I'm opposed to it. I'm not opposed to it. That sounds wrong because I'm really glad if it helps people find, you know, people who inflicted harm or killed their loved ones. Or if it helps them find long lost family members that they're looking for, things like that, biological family members that they never knew they had. Yeah, I guess it's the private aspect of me that comes out and says like, ooh. Yeah, sure. Well, I didn't realize that. So if you give your DNA to Ancestry or 23andMe, I was unaware of how it could be used. And that's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, Briefly, we're going to get into it more on the lookup list for this episode. So this um, Parabon Nanolabs determined that the potential suspect's heritage was 46% Western Africa and 34% European. They claimed that he was light bra- had light brown to brown skin and black hair. Um, because they couldn't identify his age from the DNA, they created images of what he may have looked like at age 25, 38, and 52. And I have those images, so I will post them. It's super interesting. It's important to note that the DNA evidence used to generate these images, it doesn't account for weight, hairstyle, or other environmental factors. Tattoos. Right. The authorities stress that these DNA-based reconstructions are scientific approximations at best and will only be used as a guide in the investigation. They created these likenesses of what the killer might look like, released them to the public, put them everywhere that they could, and still nothing. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. Around this time as well, uh, Sherry's daughter, Heidi, and and her husband, Greg, upped the reward to $250,000 for any information that would lead to the arrest of Sherry's killer. Uh, Heidi said, we have been blessed with some resources that many families don't have, and we're fortunate that we've been in a position where we can do what we're doing. So this was 2017, 2018. By 2020, nearly 10 years had gone by with no suspects, no persons of interest named in the case. But things were finally about to change for this investigation and Sherry's family in a very big way. 
I still have no idea. And all I got down is this individual could be from West African descent slash Southern European is what you said? Just European, yeah. Oh, West African and European. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. In October of 2020, police finally had a suspect based on the images that DNA had created. While these images didn't provide a perfect likeness, they did enable investigators to compare it with DNA supplied to firms that test DNA to trace your ancestry, like Ancestry.com. It cannot necessarily 100% positively identify you or your relatives, but it can locate likely matches to a person's relatives. And even though it took some time, some articles claim that this is how police were eventually able to come up with a suspect from the DNA likeness and the DNA on sites like Ancestry and 23andMe. I will be completely honest here. I read so much about this and I poured through articles about this, about how they found this suspect. And there is some gray area. Some sources say that they have this likeness. They're pouring through, you know, people who've been arrested, people who've been in trouble, people who live in the area, um, pictures on Ancestry and on 23andMe. And they took and they have this likeness and they said, oh, here's a picture of this, this is him. And then they surveilled him and they saw him throw away a cup or something and took the cup and took his DNA and then matched it to the DNA found at the scene and then arrested him. Several sources say this is how they caught him. Other sources say that they brought him in for questioning based on his likeness, this DNA likeness, brought him in for questioning and then took you know, his DNA from something he touched or a cup that he drank from in the police interrogation room and then matched it. But how did they, I get the, you don't have the answer necessarily, but like, how did they bring him in? I get, because when you do a 23andMe or an Ancestry, I think you swab, swab, swab. So even if you've never been arrested, if you've done one of those. Mm -hmm. Or your family members. Or your family members. Let's say I do 23andMe. Right, my DNA to some extent is in the system. Yes. And also... How do they bring me in initially if for 10 years they had no suspects? I get they, because I guess they the have composite. The composite. And, oh, that's and a then, great word. And then they have my DNA. So right. they, they know that. Take it, everyone that it, matches some DNA to you. Yes, exactly. Okay. So they named this suspect Adam Antonio Durburo on Fox 13 Now. There was an article where Chief Carruth says that information from the DNA phenotype was uploaded to several genealogy websites, including Ancestry.com, which helped the police focus on Durburo, on Adam. In 2020, investigators say they secretly collected DNA Durburo left in a public place. After testing it and finding that his DNA matched the DNA left on Sherry, they then were able to arrest and formally charge him. Other sources say that the authorities did not have his DNA when he was brought in as a suspect, but then collected a sample when he was in their custody. Either way. By offering him a coffee or a tea? Yes. Mm. Either way, Adam Durborough's DNA was collected and submitted to the Utah Bureau of Forensic Services on October 7th, 2020. On October 8th, 2020, his DNA was a match to the DNA collected from Sherry's bookstore and the blood all of that from the crime scene. And after the results came in, Adam was taken into custody two days later where he confessed to the homicide, according to police affidavit. Charging documents show that he offered no motive. And then he was held without bail in the Salt Lake County Jail. 
At the time of his arrest on October 10th, 2020, he was 29 years old, making him only 19 at the time of Sherry's death. Still hasn't given a motive? Well, we'll, well find learn, out. Let's learn a little bit about Adam Durborough. Who is he? So according to sources, he was a troubled person with a difficult past, though nothing that necessarily supported or explained committing a crime of such an incredibly violent nature. I mean, stabbed 20 times, sexually assaulted, post-mortem, like... Bludgeoned. Blood, yeah. I mean, very incredibly violent. He had run into some legal trouble. He was charged with shoplifting two separate times, but other than that, his record was pretty clean. Some people said that he occasionally posted questionable things on social media, but nothing terribly violent except for a post that he shared about killing people on the two-year anniversary of Sherry's death. It showed a cartoon character holding a blood-stained saw along with the caption, don't upset me, I'm running out of places to hide the bodies. So this article said like nothing terribly violent. And then I read that and I was like, that's terribly violent. That is terribly violent. It also could be incredibly obscure. People post things on social media all the time. Stupid that shit. No, you know, they hold no weight. Still weird. Well, now that we know, yeah, in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Part of the reason that police had such a difficult time identifying him is because he was adopted. So his stepmother, he was adopted by a a, a man named um, Joseph Durborough, and that man married another woman, I guess, you know. Neither were biological. And then right. the original adopter right. had a newer New wife. wife. Right. So his stepmother adopted or fostered 12 children. And his real mother was actually believed to live just a mile from Sherry's bookstore. His adoptive father spent several years in prison for trafficking in child pornography. Joseph Durborough came to Utah from New Jersey in the early 80s. Later in life, he married and moved into a home in Orem, which, if you'll recall, mm-hmm. is where Sherry grew up. Mm-hmm. Mm. And by 1999, Joseph, this is Adam's, the suspect's father, started a photography studio in his basement on the website for this photography page. It said, this site's purpose is to showcase young models. All of our models are under the age of 14, and we have contracted both male and female models. We have a particularly good selection of ethnic models to work with. One of those first ethnic models that he referred to in his kind of mission statement on his website was one of his own foster children, which was strange. And so word kind of got around town in Orem about how this maybe was not totally kosher. And when word reached the Orem police, child sex crimes became concerned that something more sinister might be going on beneath the surface of this like home child f- photography studio. Now, they were aware of this back in like 99, 2000 or mm-hmm. that. Di- oh, so in 2002, the U.S. District Court in Eastern California unsealed an indictment against 15 people accusing them of conspiring to create and share images of child pornography. And it was the result of a 10-month investigation. One of the people in this previously sealed and now unsealed indictment um, had an email address and username that tracked back to Joseph Durboro. Dad of Adam. Dad of Adam. So they served a search warrant, searched his home, and um, arrested him. And he went to prison for, for a while. Um, and how old was Adam was still a teen. teenager. Yeah. So after his father, his adoptive father's arrest, Adam had some trouble as a teen and ended up in juvenile detention in Salt Lake City. Juvenile court records are sealed, so it's not currently evident what, uh, you know, what he was in there for. I did find one, one website that speculated that had something 
I hate to say it because it, it is complete speculation. If these records are sealed, I'm not sure how this news um, website would have known, but said that there was speculation that had to do with some type of rape. Mm. So he was uh, about, I think about 15 then. He completed his junior and senior years of high school um, in the juvenile justice system. And about a month and a half after Sherry was killed, Adam was arrested for theft and had a sentence of 180 days in jail. He was released from jail that fall, but missed a scheduled court date. Mm. And they issued a warrant for his arrest. And at that time, it was his his address was listed at a place that police believed was his biological mother's apartment. So he had somehow reconnected with her and was living with her. Now I was telling I was telling Mark th- about this story earlier, and he said, "Well, if he was arrested for shoplifting, they would have had his fingerprints. So why didn't they match his fingerprints to the partial fingerprint?" Uh, well, I don't know. Oh, that's okay. So if he was arrested, he was arrested as an adult, a legal adult. In 2011. So he was 19. It was about a month and a half after Sherry was murdered and he was arrested. They obviously fingerprinted him if he spent 180 days in jail. And Mark was like, well, why didn't they match those fingerprints? And you know what? As I was researching this full transparency, I didn't even think of that. And he's totally right. Why wouldn't they have met? Maybe the partial just didn't match. Like it didn't ding. Or is it that I know Hmm. they ran his fingerprints. They ran the partial right after she was murdered, like immediately. He hadn't been arrested yet. He didn't get arrested for for theft until a month and a half after her murder. Oh, well, there you go. That's the answer. So they're not rerunning the fingerprints all the time. No. Yeah. So that's a little bit of background on Adam, which I feel like we talked about this in the last episode that a troubled past does not excuse a horrific act of violence or murder or rape or, or really anything. Well, nothing. I To me, nothing excuses any of that. Sure, sure, sure. So on October 4th, these are the most recent updates. On October 4th, 2021, Adam pleaded guilty in the third district court to aggravated murder, a first degree felony, and no plea deals were made. The Salt Lake County district attorney said with today's plea of guilty, we were one step closer to bringing a measure of justice for Sherry Black and her family. And when when asked kind of like, how did you find this suspect? The DA said we were able to develop a DNA profile that then belonged to an unknown male. And then there was good police work that eventually led to the identification of the suspect. It's a little bit, there is a little bit of fuzziness though, like I said before about like how exactly, yes, the genealogy websites, yes, the DNA um, composite that they made, but there was no um, kind of straight line that I could see. What still was the connection? Why her? We don't know. Oh, I know. Well, when you were just sharing what you just said, uh, my mind went to, oh, they should think 23andMe or Ancestry.com. It sounds like that was the missing large link. Yeah. missing chain link yep. that helped them. And I've heard that a lot, a lot of unsolved things are being solved more conclusive now. Mm. So since Adam pled guilty to aggravated murder, there were only two sentencing options, life without the possibility of parole and 25 years to life. So on February 23rd, 2022, Adam received his sentence. He was given an opportunity to apologize prior to his sentencing, which he chose not to. His attorney did offer a brief statement that included saying that Adam was a troubled 19-year-old at the time and that he was sorry. During his sentencing, many of Sherry's grandchildren told the judge just how their lives were changed 
by Adam and how Sherry's death impacted them. All the grandchildren apparently grew up right next door to Sherry and were very close with her. They asked, they all asked for the sentence to be life in prison without the possibility of parole, explaining that they did not want to worry about where the man who murdered their grandmother was any longer. Yeah, because 25 to life means after 25, he could have gotten out. And some of those grandchildren or great grandchildren would be a lot, very alive and well and mid-age. Yep. So Judge Randall Scanchi gave Adam a life sentence with no chance of parole, though when he delivered the sentence, he said he did so with a heavy heart. He noted that the sentence was straightforward because the actions were egregious and spontaneous. The judge also said that he feels extreme sorrow for those on both sides of the courtroom. He addressed the court talking about the family who lost someone who gave meaning to their lives and the man without a supportive family who at 19 did an unspeakable act with no premeditation, which caused that loss. He said, it defies explanation, and I understand that, but the great treasure of a life that Sherry Black provided to each of you is a great treasure that Mr. DeBurrow didn't have, and that sorrows me as well. What an insightful judge. What a reasonable individual, yeah. That's yeah. what I think. It's sad. It's all sad. It's all sad. It's and I think sad. that's by yeah. what the, ju- what, what, the judge, what you reiterated. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after the sentencing, uh, Sherry's family gathered before the media, said they were pleased with the sentencing. Heidi said, this is the dawn of a new day. We're going to put him behind us. And we're going to do good things and remember her. One granddaughter said... We chose to not let evil win. We promised ourselves and our grandma that evil would not win. My grandma's body was robbed that day, but her goodness, her gentle strength, and her desire to do good was ignited in all of us who loved her so deeply. And it will never be, that light will never be dimmed. So closure, but to me, it's like closure as in we have an individual who was convicted of doing this awful, terrible, heinous act. Yeah. And also we have no idea who this person is. We have no idea why. And maybe there is no why. I think a lot of times in life, there is no why. People sure. just do terrible things. It's closure without being closure. To me, I'm a, I'm a big, I need to know why person. Uh, I mean, in everything, but certainly I would imagine in this, why. I would want to hear from him why. Even if it was, I don't know. I had a mental break. I am just a terrible person. I And he said none of that. He didn't even offer anything. Nothing. So as with every episode and every story we tell, our our thoughts and hearts go out to the family. And we got a lot to look up in this episode. We got a lot to look look up. up Yeah, we sure do. That will be an interesting one. Thank you so much for listening. We have loved, like I said, beginning hearing your reviews. Please leave us a review. We want to hear your thoughts. And that's it. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Good night. And good luck. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. And if you want to see pictures of the victims, the murderers, and any additional related images, head over to our Instagram right now. Our handle across all social media platforms is death, then the letter X, and then Southwest spelled out. So D-E-A-T-H-X-S-O-U-T-H-W-E-S-T. Death X. Southwest. Death by Southwest is a Cavalry Audio production. Hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Produced by Margot Carmichael. Associate produced by Jenna Schneider. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Audio editing and sound design by Revision Sound. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck.
Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.